Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we'll devote our attention to the chaotic aftermath of the Great Fitna. Al-Ma'mun's decision to remain in Khurasan following his victory left much of the Caliphate in disarray, especially where his brother's regime had been most dominant. Unsurprisingly, the worst impacted region of all was the Abbasid capital province, Iraq. Rebellions abound over a stretch of tumultuous years, and the caliph's officials often got in the way of effective governance, some due to ineptitude and others' personal ambition. Episode 57 Interregnum Having gone through a couple centuries of Arab history together, we have covered our fair share of civil strife by now. Times of fitna are invariably filled with social upheaval, which, in the absence of a stabilizing force, usually gives way to violent pandemonium. It is then up to the next administration to bring its own peace to affected areas, something typically accomplished after a new governor builds ties with local power brokers and draws them into the fold. Well, with a new caliph currently squared away in Khurasan, such a resolution remained an unlikely prospect. The issue wasn't just his remoteness either. Al-Ma'mun had never planned on ruling the caliphate this early. Having secured a miraculous victory, he'd had no time to develop a vision for the many provinces that had now pledged their allegiance to him. His small retinue of advisors and commanders was fit for a provincial governor, but nowhere near the size required to provide the manpower for ruling the entire caliphate. The 25-year-old al-Ma'mun handled these problems the same way he had handled the fitna, by trusting his wazir al-Fadl ibn Sahil in all things. Before we begin, it's worth taking a minute to say a little bit more about how our leading characters are portrayed in our sources, as that will help us make sense of this confusing time for the caliphate. Al-Ma'mun will go on to be a great caliph, and we come across virtually no criticism or negative portrayals of him even during this precarious transitionary period. While our sources do credit Fadl ibn Sahil with guiding Al-Ma'mun to victory in the Great Fitna, they also blame him for everything that was wrong with the new caliph's reign. The overwhelming perception was that Al-Ma'mun was being controlled by his wazir, much like his brother had been by the cunning Al-Fadl ibn Rabi'ah. So while the caliph will be largely missing in action today, Fadl ibn Sahil will take the lead as the manipulative, power-hungry advisor. It's also worth keeping an eye on Harthama, who will play the unlikely role of the tragic hero in this tale. Now, there were rebellions in every corner of the caliphate, even Khurasan, but our primary sources, the earliest non-religious histories, were all written in Baghdad and this should alert us to the possibility of bias. While the authors weren't around for Tahir's siege of the city, their parents and grandparents likely endured it, and so it's no surprise that Iraq features a lot more prominently than other provinces, despite the fact that things were just as animated elsewhere. Even with this narrowed focus on Iraq, 
You should know that I'll still have to abridge more material than usual as I try to present a simplified version of a society in turmoil. Since Iraq will occupy such a prominent place in our discussion today, a good place to start would be to try and imagine what local attitudes were like there. Al-Amin had been executed by Tahir in September of 813, after an apocalyptic siege which lasted over a year. Al-Amin's reign was such a ruinous failure that I'm sure many welcomed its end. But then again, Tahir and the victorious besiegers seemed to harbor contempt for the locals, so they weren't embraced as liberators either. There were lingering hopes in the capital that Al-Ma'mun would prove to be a just caliph who cared about his people, but his enduring exile in faraway Khurasan dismayed many, and led to rumors that the caliph was being controlled by his wazir, who kept him isolated from the Ummah. Harthama was probably the only figure in Al-Ma'mun's camp who had some purchase among the people of the capital. His long history of service to Al-Rashid, his efforts to avoid unnecessary damage during the siege, and his repeated offers of safety to Al-Amin meant that the Iraqis saw him as a trustworthy figure in uncertain times. The final significant element in Iraqi society was the large Abbasid presence in the province. Lucky for us, Al-Amin had held a census for his clan, and the results had come back saying there were over 33,000 Abbasids in total. We can assume that most of these were in Iraq, and many of them had networks of loyalists extending their support even further. This faction had been loyal to Al-Amin, but they were willing to accept Al-Ma'mun now that he had come out on top. Their priorities were simple, to maintain leadership over both the province and the caliphate. Following their victory, Tahir and Harthama endeavored to build a sense of stability in Baghdad and other Iraqi cities, but the absence of state policy meant any assurances they gave could only go so far. Despite this serious handicap, things had begun to calm down before the new administration's first orders arrived from Maru. The timing of these events is a little difficult to make out, but this may have come as late as the summer of 814, so almost a whole year after Al-Amin's execution. The caliph's orders were for Tahir to relinquish all the land and treasure he had conquered to the wazir's brother, Al-Hasan ibn Sahir would become the new governor of everything from Iraq to the borders of Khurasan. Furthermore, Tahir was ordered to march on to Raqqa, then Musul, Jazeera, Syria, Egypt, and finally Africa, to defeat any insurgencies and officially accept pledges for the new caliph on his behalf. Harthama was summoned back to Khurasan with no explanation. Our sources broadly interpret these early moves as a transparent attempt by the caliph's wazir to monopolize control over the caliphate's richest and most important provinces. They report that Tahir felt shortchanged by this new arrangement, and was particularly upset that he no longer had the resources he needed to pay his men, and now had to instead march them on yet another campaign. Harthama was apparently treated very curtly by the incoming governor, he was probably regarded with deep suspicion by both Hassan ibn Sahel and his brother the wazir. Fadl ibn Sahel must have been especially alarmed at the great influence Harthama wielded in his native Iraq, and so he ordered him back to where he could be more easily contained. 
Both Harthama and Tahir saw Fadl's shake-up as a self-serving power grab, but neither one of them hesitated in following their new marching orders. Unsurprisingly, the tenuous peace they'd managed to cobble together in the province immediately collapsed. Hassan ibn Zahil's appointment completely alienated the Iraqis by confirming their worst fears, that the caliph was a mere puppet in the hands of his crafty wazir. The idea that al-Ma'mun might just be kept in Maru indefinitely terrified them, as it meant that Iraq ran the risk of being relegated from seat of Arab power to some forsaken backwater, as had happened with Syria following the fall of the Umayyads. This insecurity underlay a volatile atmosphere, which saw several rebellions against Hassan's officials and authority. We'll focus only on the most threatening one, a movement in Kufa led by an ex-soldier of Herthamas known as Abu al-Saraya, or the Banner Man, which succeeded in bringing a Hashemite to power. Abu al-Saraya's unit had been disbanded after his commander was ordered back to Khorasan, but the charismatic soldier seems to have had a unique gift for channeling and amplifying discontent. In early 815, his ragtag forces defeated an army of over 10,000 that had been sent to quash them, and the unexpected victory kicked the insurgency into high gear. Within a month, Abu al-Sataya had encouraged rebellions in other cities, and before long he claimed control over both Wasit and Basra, effectively limiting Hassan's authority to the crumbling capital. Even the sudden death of the Hashemite he championed didn't stop him. Abu al-Saraya simply found a younger one in whose name he now claimed to fight. He defeated another army of 4,000 and dispatched Hashemite emissaries to spread the uprising farther, this time to Mecca and Medina. It took this series of humiliating defeats for Hassan ibn Sahel to finally admit that he was in over his head. He wrote a haughty missive to Harthama, ordering him back to Iraq to clean up his mess. Harthama was in no mood for more of Hassan's attitude, so he rebuffed his request, saying he already had his orders to return to Khurasan. He only relented after Hassan sent him a much humbler and more apologetic letter, pleading for his assistance. What was difficult for Hassan's officials proved far easier for Harthama since he didn't have to deal with undue hostility and resistance from the local population. He met Abu al-Saraya's forces in battle in May outside the capital and routed them in a quick and bloody encounter. Abu al-Saraya escaped to Kufa where he worked the locals up into a frenzy, causing them to pillage and destroy all Abbasid property in the city. His movement had mushroomed since its inception at the beginning of the year, but now that Harthama was on the case, rabble-rousing got far more difficult. See, there were plenty of Iraqis who were natural opponents of the Hashemite movement, not least of all the Abbasids and all their loyalists. But these factions did not feel comfortable working with al-Ma'mun's regime, at least not while it was represented by non-Arabs like al-Hassan ibn Sahid. Harthama, on the other hand, was far more palatable, and he even recruited leading Abbasids to his side, like the admired Mansur ibn al-Mahdi, brother to Harun al-Rashid and uncle to al-Ma'mun. This local coalition building proved key to defeating the various movements provoked by Abu al-Saraya. It took Harthama and co. another five months to put out all the fires he'd started in Iraq, leaving only the Hashemite rebellions burning in Yemen, Mecca, and Medina. 
Harthama dispatched forces to tackle those as well, and Abul Saraya, instigator of all this chaos, was finally captured and executed in October of 815, after ten months of hell-raising. Now that he'd completed his task, Harthama decided he really did need to go back to Khurasan, and not just because of the wazir's summons. His time among the Abbasids and Iraqis had convinced him that al-Ma'mun properly belonged back in Baghdad. Not only were his clansmen truly prepared to accept his leadership, but more importantly, Harthama was certain that nothing short of the caliph's return could bring a lasting peace to the region. Furthermore, the unaccountable absence of support for the pro-government factions that had fought by his side during Abu Saraya's rebellion left Harthama with the unshakable feeling that al-Ma'mun was being kept in the dark. Something sinister was going on back in Maru, and he felt it was his duty to suss out what it was and put a stop to it. Harthama resolved to speak to the caliph in person, to let him know what things were like in Iraq and how badly needed his presence was back home. Before we follow Harthama to Khurasan, it's worth noting that his mere departure led to rioting in Iraq. We hear that the governor's troops mutinied and forced his deputy out of his base in the capital for the second time. These troops were mostly local recruits, remnants of the Abna. Tahir had taken his soldiers with him to Raqqa and beyond, and Abu Saraya's movement had cost the caliphate many loyal men from the east. Amid this chaos, some jailed Hashemites broke loose, and one of them took over Basra with the help of Abu Saraya's brother. This Hashemite came to be known as Zayd the Fire after he burned down all Abbasid property to the ground, a considerable chunk of the city. Other narrations say the nickname was in reference to his penchant for burning his enemies at the stake. Either way, it wasn't meant as a compliment. Both these movements were eventually subdued, but their timing speaks to how essential Harthama had come to be in Iraq. While he was en route back to Khurasan, Harthama suddenly received new orders. The letter from Maru said he had been chosen as governor of Syria, Mecca, and Medina, and that he was to return to the West in that capacity immediately. Harthama was determined to speak to the caliph, however, and he suspected that his new assignment had only been chosen for him by the wazir to ensure he never got the chance. After weighing his options, he decided to ignore the new orders and ride on to Maru for an audience with al-Ma'mun. We're told that upon hearing that Harthama had chosen to continue on his way, Fadl ibn Sahil immediately began working on the caliph's opinion of him. The wazir cast Harthama in the harshest light, by characterizing his friction with Hassan ibn Sahel as borderline treason and pointing out how suspicious it was that Abu Saraya had been one of Harthama's soldiers before going rogue. Our sources, eager to blame Fadl for everything, inadvertently make it sound like al-Ma'mun was helplessly and tightly wrapped around the wazir's little finger. The story of Harthama reached its tragic climax when he got to the outskirts of Maru. We're told he ordered his drummer and troops to make as much noise as they could so that the wazir couldn't hide their arrival from the caliph. Little did he know that Fadl had already poisoned al-Ma'mun against him, 
and when the caliph asked what all that noise was, Fadl simply called it more proof of Harthama's disrespect and self-importance. Harthama was granted an audience with the caliph immediately upon his arrival, but he was dumbfounded when al-Ma'mun came out in a rage, blaming him for the mess in Iraq and accusing him of working with the caliphate's enemies. Before he could even get a word in, Harthama was dragged to the caliph's dungeons, where the wazir's men swiftly snuffed him out. When al-Ma'mun asked to see him a few days later, he was told that Harthama had perished after some light torture, and that was that. News of Harthama's death reached Iraq in the second half of 816, and as you can imagine, it led to more chaos than Hassan ibn Sahel could handle. The people of Baghdad kicked their governor's men out once again, and this time they tried to pledge their allegiance to Mansur ibn al-Mahdi, the caliph's uncle, who had fought alongside Harthama against Abu al-Saraya. Al-Mansur was smart enough to decline the honor, but after they pressed him he agreed to represent them as a sort of self-appointed governor ruling in the name of his nephew, al-Ma'mun. While this had been calculated as an intentionally non-threatening stance to take, Hassan ibn Sahil still tried to punish these renegades, and what followed was a series of stalemates and negotiations that went nowhere. This governor just could not pull off any convincing victories. It's pretty impressive how consistently bad he was at his job. Although the Iraqis were now technically rid of their hated governor, things were worse than ever in the capital around this time. Gangs of armed men, disaffected soldiers, criminals, really anyone who could stomach some ultra-violence, roamed the streets terrorizing those who crossed their path. Rape, rapine, and coerced slavery became commonplace in what a mere decade ago was one of the richest, most advanced cities in the world. Vigilante groups formed in response to this lawlessness, many with uncompromising fanatical outlooks. These movements made warlords out of some gifted preachers, but they in turn were soon consumed by the violence that propelled and surrounded them. So things were really, really bad in Iraq, both in terms of what life was like and how little control the state, or anyone for that matter, wielded over the province. Its people downright refused to cooperate with al-Ma'mun's chosen governor, Hassan ibn Sahel, but their selection of the caliph's uncle to represent them shows that they did not seek to disavow al-Ma'mun altogether. His clan had found a way to successfully maintain Abbasid control over the province, and they in turn were loath to repudiate a Abbasid caliph. This effectively kept the province tethered to the caliphate, despite the lack of a working relationship between al-Ma'mun and his kin. But in 817, his fourth year in power, al-Ma'mun found a way to alienate even these die-hard supporters who identified his interests with their own. In an unfathomable move, the caliph named the most distinguished Hashemite, Ali ibn Musa, grandson of the celebrated Jafar al-Sadiq, as his successor. You heard that right. Al-Ma'mun officially appointed a descendant of the prophets as the Ummah's next caliph, giving away his clan's exclusive position as rulers of the Ummah. To say this news was badly received in Iraq would be an understatement. It instantly galvanized the Abbasids into action, 
They conferred and decided that since Mansur ibn al-Mahdi wouldn't accept the role, his brother Ibrahim would become their new caliph. They pledged their allegiance to Ibrahim, and in doing so, technically started a new fitna. Al-Ma'mun's governor, Al-Hasan ibn Sahil, failed to do anything to stem or counter this grave escalation, and his brother, the wazir, kept the caliph in the dark about all these developments. But let's step away from Iraq for a bit. We need to fully appreciate this decision. For the first time ever, a direct descendant of the Prophet had been named as future caliph. There's no consensus on how this came about, and most of the explanations on offer seem to have ulterior motives and make little sense. For example, many narrations point the finger to Fadl ibn Sahil, saying it was something he had cooked up, either to try and leverage Hashemite popularity to his advantage or to strip the Abbasids of their power. Much of this openly polemical material is easy to dismiss based on its tone alone, and none of it explains why the wazir would want an educated, pious, and respected Arab leader to be named as the caliph's successor and become attached to his court. A man like that would be extremely difficult to control, and the name of the game had always been to keep the caliph away from everyone else, especially influential figures like Ali ibn Musa. The only explanation that makes sense to me is that al-Ma'mun was simply taken by how perfect a Muslim and Arab leader Ali was. It may seem like a simplistic answer, but if we accept that Fadl ibn Sahil had no reason to open this can of worms, then there's no alternative, as the only other person capable of suggesting policy was the caliph. We'll dedicate a future episode to the Hashemites, and particularly to Ali's ancestors, but for now a quick recap will have to suffice. Harun al-Rashid had persecuted the Hashemites mercilessly, and although al-Amin's administration was much less effective, it was run by the same people, so it carried on with the clan's harsh treatment. Obviously, the fitna gave the caliphate's enemies some room to breathe, and as evidenced by the many Hashemite rebellions, they still held some intrinsic appeal to the people. However, their leadership was so fractured it was practically non-existent, something which left room for men like Abu Saraya to lead the fight in their name. Ali's bloodline was the only exception, as it was an unbroken chain of supremely knowledgeable, charismatic, and highly respected religious scholars, of which he was the eighth link. Al-Ma'mun may have invited Ali to Khurasan as early as 815, and many narrations make the astounding claim that he repeatedly offered Ali the position of caliph, something which the Hashemite consistently turned down. We're told Ali only agreed to be Al-Ma'mun's successor because the persistent caliph wouldn't take no for an answer and kept asking for up to two years. There's so much that's strange about Ali becoming Al-Ma'mun's successor that it almost makes more sense that the whole thing was unplanned. For instance, Ali was at least 20 years older than the caliph, making the arrangement simply unrealistic. Another obstacle was the famously apolitical stance of literally every single one of Ali's forefathers going back over 130 years. This was probably why Ali stipulated his acceptance on the condition that he be allowed to stay away from all politics and administrative duties.
Knowing this, it's hard to regard this designation of a Hashemite as successor as anything beyond the merely symbolic. Despite these hurdles, Al-Ma'mun moved ahead with his decision. And in March 817, Ali was recognized as the official successor. To mark the start of the new era, we're told that the caliph changed his court costumes and personal attire from the traditional Abbasid black to Hashemite green. There's a lot of hearsay at this point, and it's difficult to put stock in any of the stories we hear about Ali and Fadl ibn Sahel, as both figures are portrayed in exaggerated terms. I don't intend to waste time on questionable material, so let's just say that Ali remained in Maru doing his usual thing, leading prayers, guiding seekers, and educating religious scholars. He isolated himself from politics absolutely, until one day when he accidentally stumbled deep, deep into it. Here's what happened. While having a casual conversation with Al-Ma'mun, Ali asked him what his plan was for the predicament in Iraq. It was immediately clear that the caliph was absolutely clueless about the situation and seemed to be under the impression that everything there was smooth as silk. Ali felt obliged to reveal the bitter truth, that Al-Ma'mun's clan had renounced him totally after he had appointed a Hashemite successor. He then had to go a lot further back than that, as it seemed like Al-Ma'mun had no idea that the Iraqis saw him as a weakling who had been captivated by a wazir whom they despised. It was a lot to take in, and the caliph could not bring himself to believe what Ali was telling him, in spite of all the respect he had for the pious man. Ali brought forth witnesses, leaders from Al-Ma'mun's own administration, who after assurances of safety professed that they had been ordered by Fadl ibn Sahil to never divulge any information to the caliph personally. The wazir had managed to forestall Harthama's warnings to Al-Ma'mun for a little over a year, but the cat was finally out of the bag. In late 817, Al-Ma'mun announced his intention of moving to Baghdad, something which led his wazir to immediately tender his resignation. The caliph refused to accept it, and he assured Fadl ibn Sahil that he still had his full confidence, and with that, the entire court began its journey to Iraq. One February morning, while the royal procession was still making its way out of Khurasan, Fadl ibn Sahil was found dead in the shower. Most narrations say his killers were members of Al-Ma'mun's guards, but that the caliph had them executed afterwards to maintain the illusion of innocence. Just like that, the most powerful man in the caliphate five years in a row was gone. Moving on, a short distance west was the resting place of the caliph's father, Harun al-Rashid, and al-Ma'mun decided to stop and pay his respects. While there, in the spring of 818, Ali ibn Musa passed away following a sudden illness. Al-Ma'mun didn't execute anyone this time, but as you can imagine, plenty of narrations call Ali's death an assassination and point fingers at the caliph. I'm not convinced, but honestly I have no proof to back up my pet theory, that the Abbasids had somehow managed to take him out. I just think that Al-Ma'mun's infatuation with Ali was real, and if he wanted to remove him as successor to mend fences with the Abbasids, then he wasn't going to get any pushback from Ali. So what's with the murder? 
I think it's more likely that the clan succeeded in infiltrating the caliph's camp, especially now that Fadl ibn Sahil was out of the way. Either that, or Ali just caught something and died. I mean, it's not like assassination was the only cause of death back then. By the way, there is absolutely no consensus on anything I've said since Al-Ma'mun found out that Fadl had been keeping him in the dark. Some accounts say that he immediately ordered Fadl's death. Then he and Ali set out for Baghdad. Others, that he had them both killed, then made the journey alone. The dates are also all over the place. I literally cobbled together a narrative that made sense to me with this one. Because of the large personalities involved, this whole subplot with the Hashemite successor is extremely poorly preserved in Arab memory. The Iraqis were jubilant when they heard that Al-Ma'mun was returning the Abbasid seat of power to its traditional home. Their years of resisting Hassan ibn Sahil had finally paid off, and despite the enormous toll it took, and the fact that most people expected Hassan to become even more powerful as Al-Ma'mun's next wazir, it was an accomplishment they prided themselves on greatly. Now that there was no longer a need to oppose the caliphate, support for Ibrahim ibn al-Mahdi vanished practically overnight. All the leading Abbasids and their loyalists eagerly awaited al-Ma'mun outside the city to celebrate his long-desired return. Apparently, his arrival in green dress caused some awkwardness, because the tension wasn't lifted until the caliph showed up to court with his entire entourage in black a few days later. Finally, a good five years into his reign, the caliph was back in Baghdad. We've already covered so much today that I'm a little hesitant to jump straight into analysis and commentary. But if we strip away all the different rebellions and the unique personalities involved, we can summarize what we learned today pretty succinctly. Although the Khurasanis had triumphed over the Arabs in the Great Fitna, they had failed to subdue them. Eastern dominance over the entire caliphate thus proved unsustainable. Whichever side was more desperate usually won the day, so it seems clear that these two forces were pretty evenly matched. With their backs against the wall, the Arabs didn't unite the same way the Khurasanis had when the caliphate bullied them. Instead, their society disintegrated into an ungovernable mess. But that worked too. The greatest obstacle faced... But that worked, too. The greatest obstacle faced by Hassan ibn Sahil's administrators wasn't some army in the field, but the ever-present expectation of hostility from the resentful population, something far more disruptive to governance. Al-Ma'mun's extended five-year absence from Arab lands also revealed something else. Without the support of a strong caliphate, Arab leadership would be contested and the Hashemites were the only ones still throwing their hats in the ring. They were popular in the Arab Peninsula. The Abbasids maintained a firm grip over Iraq, while in Syria something entirely different was going on. A local tribal leader had united a small confederation around him and managed to resist both Abbasid and Hashemite attempts at encroaching on his domain. Further afield, we still find three other independent dynasties, the Aghlabids in Algeria, the Idrisids in Morocco, and the Umayyads in Andalusia. 
So it seems likely that without a powerful caliphate, the political future of the Ummah would resemble those smaller independent principalities. We can also discern some familiar themes in the material we covered today. The fate of Al-Fadl ibn Sahil, everything from his meteoric rise to unfettered control over all matters of state, to his sudden, violent, and undignified end, is very reminiscent of the Baramika. The story Al-Mansur's wazir, Al-Muriyani, had told over three generations back, about the rooster who had glimpsed his future in the caliph's oven, still rang very true. The position of wazir had now repeatedly proven how problematic it was by nature, requiring a uniquely strong caliph to counter the ambitions of his indispensable advisers and to keep them in line. Finally, the paradoxical way in which al-Ma'mun is portrayed during these dark years bears a clear mark of distortion. It's obvious that the narrations want to completely avoid blaming the caliph, but in doing so they inadvertently make him seem like little more than a pliable tool in the hands of his wazir. Their message remains consistent throughout, though. Al-Ma'mun good, Fadl ibn Sahil bad. The truth could well have been far more complicated. The hatred towards Fadl and Hassan ibn Sahil is never addressed in our sources either. It's simply accepted as is without the need for further explanation. It seems like belying all other social forces was the ethnic tension between Arabs and those they viewed as Easterners. So now that al-Ma'mun had removed his wazir, returned to Baghdad, and renounced his ties to the Hashemites, where did that leave the balance of power between the Arabs and the East? Well, it's complicated, and it's a dynamic relationship that will continue to shift, morphing the caliphate with it every time it does so. There are other, more burning, practical questions for the caliph, such as, now what? He had executed the person he'd relied on for literally all administrative duties, and had just returned to the ruins of a city that had always been hostile to him. There were rebellions in every province, and the caliph didn't know whom he could rely upon for the support he badly needed. But we're done for the day. Join me next time so we can give these topics and more our attention, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.